If you're the only one in your book club who wants to read books that will change your life, you need a new book club. And we think you found it. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And can we be the first to say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Last episode was Genealogy City. (laughs) And whether you love them or you hate them, you will never look at genealogies the same again. We hope. (laughs) At this point, genealogies are still short because there were only 10 generations in humanity, starting from Adam and going to Noah. But the Bible mentor for me last episode was how much is hidden in that short list of fathers and sons. It's a list that I've read multiple times, but never put, well, I never knew what their names meant until right. you study it like that, but never thought about it. And it it was mind blowing to see what their names meant when strung together. And that is just one more example of how this is not an accident. The Bible is not an accident. Mm-hmm. The Bible is divinely written by God and he had a plan. Yeah, I, 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 I do think the Bible is amazing in that way. The more you read it, the more you discover, the more you analyze, the more you think about it, the more you ponder. And even the the different times you read it, the Holy Spirit will just bring something else to light that even though you read it before, it didn't resonate. And so it's it's very cool. Well, this week, do not expect anything as straightforward as a list of who had who. This week, we're going to discuss the very familiar Noah and the not so familiar Nephilim. Genesis 6 is this rare Nephilim weird thing that's put in there. And there's a lot of discussion about it out there. And I have even one time in my life heard a pastor talk about the Nephilim from a from a sermon. So you don't hear it a lot, but you're going to know about it after this. So just start reading Gen- Genesis 6 for us, Heather, because we will cover this crazy group of people. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right. Who are sons of God, daughters of man, Nephilim? Lots of interpretations out there. I'm going to give the three most popular and my thoughts on those. All right. The first is the called the ancient ruler interpretation. And the sons of God were rulers or kings. It is thought in ancient times, people believed that kings were part divine. We know that even mm-hmm. in more recent history, people think that. Well, that we didn't they always talk of themselves in we. They yes, would be like, yes, we yes. decide this because yes. that's because it's them and God. Deciding. Right. So in this interpretation, the daughters of men would be women taken from the community to be a part of these rulers harem. All right. I don't know if I agree with that one. The and the second interpretation is called the angelic interpretation. In this one, the sons of God are thought to be angels and they take human wives called the daughters of men. They have sexual relations with them and they give birth to the Nephilim, giant men or the mighty men of old. This reminds me of Hercules. In summary, angels come down, mix it up with the human women and have mighty giants. Well, this episode just got kind of weird. I know, exactly. 
Okay, so listen to this. Supporting this theory is that angels are called the sons of God in other places. Job 1 and 2, Psalm 29 and 89. However, many theologians kind of point out that nowhere does the Bible support this concept that angels can take human form because they're spirits. And even amongst themselves, they never procreate. So it's a little weird to think that this could have happened. Another argument against this theory is that it's rather strange that all of a sudden angels would be inserted into the story in verse one and then disappear after verse four. After all, if they had had done this bad thing, it would make sense that some of the consequences would have fallen on them. But this is not what happens. God judges the humans and there's no mention of judgment against the angels like there was with the judgment of the fall in Genesis 3, where Adam, Eve, and the serpent are all addressed by God. Weren't the angels, weren't there angels who went and got Lot out of Sodom before? Yeah, those were good angels. But then they were still the form of man, weren't they? Oh, good point. Hmm. I like that. I'm going to have to look at that. Yeah, because he looked up and, and what about in the tent? Abraham and looked up. And the tent. But he and knew they were special. Again. So maybe they kind of had an aura or something. There's also angels in um, another passage. But when it says human form, like, did they look like humans or were they actually like solid? Were they, you know, like a, what do you call a hologram? Yeah. Like they were there, but they weren't there. I don't know. All right. If the sin is only human sin, then perhaps this next theory makes more sense. This is called the Sethite interpretation. In this view, the sons of God are descendants of Seth. The daughters of man are the daughters of Cain. Okay. So this is why this Mm -hmm. makes the most sense to me because there's no angels in the picture. It's just literally who they are. Remember in chapter four and five, we talked about these two competing genealogies, the the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. Both are building families, cities, and probably even like, you know, the beginnings of armies at this time. Seth's line is all about the business of being fruitful, multiplying, and calling on the name of the Lord. Hence, they're called the sons of God. While Cain's line is dishonoring the law of God and making names for themselves. Hence, the name sons of man. The two lines coexist, uh, but separate, you know, like they're not intermingling because you're the bad guys, we're the good guys, and let's not talk. Until temptation occurs in the form of a woman. Apparently, maybe Cain's line has the hotties. And they intermarry with sass men. And instead of an improvement to the race, the whole population spirals down. Evil spreads and becomes so epic that God must deal with it. Well, I'm going with this last interpretation because yeah, totally. it's a whole lot less weird than the incestuous angels. Yeah. And I think the whole reason this is inserted here is because God wants us to know that it got really bad, really fast. And that's why there was this judgment at Noah's time. This is another reoccurring theme in Genesis and throughout the Bible that is still a warning sign and the path we go down today. Evil spreads and becomes epic and we must deal with it. Hello, warning sign. Remember, we've talked about the path. This is a warning sign, these temptations. And in this case, it's it's the intermingling. It's this mysterious propensity for unequally yoked relationships to have a negative rather than a positive effect. Which we asked this question last week, last episode, who are you in, in all of your relationships? Are you the ones that are bringing your friends and your family up or are you bringing them down? It is, it spreads. It spreads. It spreads. It makes sense. If the person you give your heart to live with, have children with, does not have the same faith, 
it can affect you and, and, and it'll affect future generations. Look, if you have a bottle of polluted water and a bottle of clean water and you mix them, the polluted water does not become clean. And if you want to try to clean it, you have to do a whole lot of yeah. filtering and all kinds yes. of other stuff. The clean water becomes polluted. And so we, we have to know this warning sign that happens right here in these verses. So just know. drink clean water. Yeah, please. All right. Sethite interpretation is the one I'm going with. Um, who are these Nephilim though? The definition of Nephilim in Hebrew means giants. It is used in the Bible in several places twice, once before the flood here and once after the flood in Numbers 13, 33. Moses has sent some men back to check out Canaan before they try to take over and they come back with this report. We saw the Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. The Nephilim, the children of the sons of God and daughters of of men were, were, we think, mighty men. Like these are powerful warlike men. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were 25 feet tall. But they could have been six or seven feet tall. Right. It, it, it may mean that they were a strong combination of Cain, Braun, and Seth Smarts. And that makes them mighty warriors. They were, you know, they were a group of guys that came out of these intermarriages and they were maybe super smart. And so they knew how to get really strong and they were war warlike like. All right. Another thing to point out. So that's kind of the whole Nephilim thing, but I don't want to skip in these verses that you read that uh, we now have a cut short life expectancy. You read, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. We kind of went from a life expectancy of 900 to 90. Some people have lived to 120, believe it or not. Even today. Only one that I know of recorded. So Jean Calment of France is the oldest person who ever lived to the age of 122 years and 164 days. She lived from 1875 to 1997. Now you can Google the list of people living. There is a woman in Japan who's 118 years old right now. She just turned 118 in January. I don't know, but that, that I don't know if I want to live. To- no, you don't. But there is a whole list of people in, and they list their country who are in the 110s. You know, they could live to 120. So it is possible, but this is where the Lord kind of, you know, cuts down our life expectancy. Why do you think he did that? He said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh and his day shall be number. He was, what did he say before that? Let the, um, uh, well, it was at, right after chapter three. So he's just, I think he realizes, gosh, when they live really long, they can just get in a lot of trouble. So let's cut it down. I don't know. <laughs> I think it'd be the opposite. You get a little wiser as you get older. I don't know. Maybe he realized that there wasn't going to be enough space on the earth at some point. No. So he needed to kind of like cut this thing off. No, 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 no. Okay. Let's cover God's response to this increasing sin. So we have this increasing sin and God's going to respond. All right. Verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. And here's the reason for the flood. Every inclination of the human heart was evil all the time. That is so 
sad. <laughs> the people had reached that point of no return. And and the sad thing is, is that God said he regretted, he was deeply troubled, and he judged. Um, we call this the antediluvian judgment, if you want some big words, theological words. This is the second judgment. The first was the judgment on Adam and Eve. The first judgment introduced death. The second brought catastrophic death. And before you start to feel like God is this, you know, angry, judgmental God, just know that he does feel bad about doing this later. We're going to read that. Yeah. Well, what judgments are to come? There will be more and beyond. And then a final judgment when Christ returns. And that one will not be of water like Noah's flood, but fire. And 2 Peter 3, 5 says this. But they deliberately forgot that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. While all this judgment of death sounds depressing, we can look at it another way. Death for believers is a new beginning. It's God's provision to restore the world to order and peace. And know that it's a part of his plan because he knows that um, the second coming is going to be, well, actually, it's a big warning to us because here we know it's going to happen. And as we see the sin increase, just like it did back then, we have to think, okay, how can I not be a part of that? Yeah. Every inclination of the human heart Heart is evil evil all all the the time. time. (laughs) I know. What can we do to change that? I know. I know. Well, I love C.S. Lewis and he summed up the good purpose of death in this way. I wish I could do a British accent. Was he British or Scottish? Don't even ask me to do a British accent. It's not happening. I know. On the other hand, this is what he said. On the other hand, only he who loses his life will save it. We are baptized into the death of Christ and it is the remedy for the fall. Death is, in fact, what some modern people call ambivalent. It is Satan's great weapon and also God's great weapon. It is holy and unholy, our supreme disgrace and our only hope, the thing Christ came to conquer and the means by which he conquered it. The point here is there's a limit to what God will tolerate before he must respond. And I I try to think of that even in my personal life, because sometimes I do try to picture when I do something wrong, like God being sad, you know, and grieved like, oh, Susan, not again. He he does care. And we have to think about that and think about Enoch. You know, he cared, he pleased God. And that's why God um, took him up to heaven. And how can we strive to be more like Enoch? Unless like Cain, I guess. <laughs> I guess the question is, how do you test God's tolerance? And and if you're listening, how would we expect God to respond to whatever it is that you're doing that is making him sad, that's making him despair? And I don't think that anymore that he is um, despairing of having created us. He's not. He loves us. And that's why he has the plan that he has made and that he sent Jesus for you. It was too hard for him to watch us go through this without Jesus. But how are you testing God and how can you um, reel yourself in so that you're not continually testing him? And we have to remember, we all have influence. How as a nation are we disappointing God? You know, how are we? I, I do feel like God has had his hand on our nation for, you know, decades um, just the way we were found for religious freedom, and and are we testing that now? And and as believers, do we do we care? Do we try to turn that tide? Do we stand up for it? So stuff to think about. 
All right. I love this next part. God spares those who love him. Read verse eight for us. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Everybody who knows me knows that I have this thing about finding favor. Esther found favor. I know every person in the Bible who found favor. Um, Nehemiah found favor. It is one of those things that I pray for my children that they would find favor all the time. My verse that I pray for them is, um, you know, Luke 2, 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And I pray that for my kids. I pray that for me, you know, that we would find favor in the eyes of Lord. And that's what Noah did. I just want to be like that. And so God spared him. Just as God spared Adam and Eve, God spares Noah. Verse nine, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Such a huge hero. And yet this is really all we know of him because he doesn't talk. He is, We're going to find it. We're going to cover a lot more of Noah in the next chapter, but I want to kind of recap who he is just so we can appreciate, you know, where he came from. First, he's 10th generation from Adam. Didn't know Adam, but knew Adam's first son. Mm, Adam died before. Yes. Yeah. He became a father at 500. So a late bloomer, because remember Enoch became a father at 65. So it was possible back then to, you know, but for whatever reason, and he was a little bit older. I have to think the bodies had to deteriorate a little less by then. Oh, totally. They must have, I don't know, was six was was 600 the new 60? I don't know. <laughs> or maybe the women weren't necessarily 500. I don't know. All right. Noah, we know, was 600 years old when the flood started. We know his father was 777 years and died God's five years. God's favorite number. Remember, yes, exactly. Died five years before the flood. So think about poor Noah. You know, he's building this huge ark. He's had the support of his father, his grandfather. And then five years before the flood, which the ark would have been pretty huge by then, his dad dies. Then his his grandfather dies the year of the flood. I kind of feel bad for him about that, but maybe he was he it was a merciful thing. He had three sons. We're going to learn a lot about them in the next chapter. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they must have married much younger than their father who married at, who became a father at 500 because we know when they enter the ark next chapter that they have wives already and they can't be older than a hundred. The, the oldest one must be a hundred. As I said before, Noah was in the found favor club with a very elite team. I mentioned a couple of my favorites, but here's a few more. Moses from Exodus 33 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do this very thing you've asked for you have found favor in my sight. Naphtali in Deuteronomy 33, 22, 23. About Naphtali, he said, Naphtali is abounding with the favor of the Lord. Solomon, 1 Kings 3, 10. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked. Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, 26. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord. Enoch, you know, Hebrews 11, 5. Before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And and then one of my favorites too, Mary, Luke 1.30. So the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That would be my dream right there, my dream vision for an angel to come to me and say, I have found favor. Because like I said, I'm big on those words and there's not very many people in the Bible that it says that about and Noah is one of them. That would be an interesting study, how to get favor in the eyes of the Lord oh, and, and study don't, every single one Don't you one think of I haven't done it? I'm sure you I have. I have done that one. 
Um, All right. What we know from the verses that Heather read here in Genesis is that he was righteous. He was blameless in a corrupt culture. I love that. Blameless in a corrupt culture. Because certainly things are heating up in our culture. It's hard to live a blameless life today. And, and, you know, the definition of blameless is probably shifting constantly compared to decades ago. So, well, you'd think it would be easier for them to be blameless, but I'm sure they had their fair share of things that could they could get into trouble with. Totally. Totally. I mean, Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Sin is sin is sin. We all have struggles. We all have temptations. He walked with God like Enoch. He was trusted with God's plan. I love this too. He was trusted with this plan to build an ark that for nobody had ever seen an ark. Nobody knew what his ark was. Why are you doing this? I don't think at this point that we can talk about these theories that it had even rained. So at this point, there is a lot of theories that, you know, they'd come out of paradise, but there was just the right climate. This is the fertile crescent. It's we could go into a lot, but again, there had never so been a flood. there was no rain? There's just theories about that. I'm just throwing it out there. Is, why are you flood? They didn't know what a flood was. They had never flooded. They had never had any of this kind of, we're only 10 generations in. The world is still very new. Uh, he was obedient with a very hard task. I am not a Noah type. I picture him as very diligent, very persistent, nose to the grind, head forward, doing, because this was a labor of love. Well, there, otherwise, how do you build a whole ark? There were some people who did math on this and felt like he, it took him 120 years. I couldn't validate that. The math sometimes didn't make sense to me. So, but it took a long time. Yeah, it was huge. And it's not like they had tools back then, no power tools for sure. Or anybody helping them. In fact, all they were doing was standing around laughing mm-hmm. at him. Exactly. So he's very obedient. He saved his family and he never speaks. He never thought about that. He never speaks. Even Moses gets to speak and he didn't like to speak. <laughs> he, he spoke with a stutter. Exactly. All right, carry on. That's a little bit about, try to picture this man in your head. If you've got a picture of somebody you know like this, they don't speak, but they're really hard worker. That's why I picture Noah. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of a cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. All right, so pause right there. I I want you to kind of picture how big this is because obviously cubits don't work for, for us. They think the ark was 450 to 510 feet long. It was 75 feet wide and about 45 to 50. 50 feet high. If you, in comparison, a football field is 300 feet. So we're at 450, like a football field and a half. So yeah, like almost two football fields, mm-hmm. but not quite. And the Titanic was 882 feet. We're not quite that big. So smaller mm. than the Titanic, but bigger than a football field. All right, keep going. Verse 17. I am going to break floodwaters on the earth and destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath and life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. 
two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And that's the takeaway. (laughs) You have to act on what God says to do, even if it doesn't make sense. Because I could imagine him trying to scribble this as God is telling him to make these cubits and uh, how high, how wide, how, what is he even talking about? And just trying to scribble it down and figure it out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny too, because it was in our Devo today at work that um, somebody, somebody said, if you're not, if you're not a if you don't have anyone to follow you, you're not a leader. You're just on a walk. Mm. Did I say that right? Yeah. And that's exactly the thing I think about Noah too is he must have been a leader because his sons were following him into crazy world. Like everyone thought they were crazy. And yet his sons believed in him. Now, of course, his his dad and his grandfather were probably encouraging him too, but they died before and they they were probably knew they weren't going on this journey with him. And to, to literally get in that ark with a bunch of animals and no people and think, what are we doing? And to even wonder if the animals are going to come. They certainly didn't go catch them all. We're going to well, go. It says that they are just going to come to them. So right? God certainly had ordained them to. But hey, if I build it, will they come? You know, <laughs> what do you think? I don't know. Um. Those who believe in God's word will be saved. And and that is a takeaway too, to me, that they believed, they believed in their father, they believed in God, they believed in their forefathers who went before them, who had, who actually walked with God and knew God, and they knew this would happen. And, and I, and I think we're going to go next week into a lot more detail about all this, but in preparation for that, remember who this man is and think about what a difficult task this was. And we're going to cover a lot about the ark and what really happened. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.